Hey, my name's Dan Grubb, and over there is Aaron Fletcher-Smith, and this is the Dan and Aaron Lycorama. Music! Anyway, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Dan and Aaron Lycorama, where every however often we put one of these up, we haven't decided completely yet. Uh, we get together over Lay's internets and gush for a while about something that we love. Uh, something funny, something amazing, something neat, uh, something that we like and we think you will probably like too. Uh, and this week, it's something that I really love that is uh, right at the bullseye of the dartboard of my heart. Ouch! The it's mashed show. potatoes. Oh, it is it's mashed potatoes. Sorry, it's, yeah. I like to get a, a fistful of mashed potatoes, and then I start doing the mashed potato. That's, I, I, I'm enjoying that mental image in my yeah. head. My wife I'm going to let you me. talk about the goon show now. She makes me clean it up every time. What a it jerk. Would, it wouldn't be so bad for all the gravy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean... Uh, having seen the way you dance in the past, uh, uh, you know, I, I feel for anyone in the room. Anyway, you were going to tell us about the goon show. It's not, the funny thing is, I didn't make any gravy. I don't know where the gravy came from. It just comes out of my pores. So anyway, I'll talk about the goon show. Um, there's uh, <laughs> there's uh, these guys, right? And uh, yeah, one of them is Spike guys. Milligan and uh, one of them is uh, Peter Sellers. Right. Um, and then one of them is um, Rita Farida. No, wait, that's not yes. it. Hey, how about you tell us about Charo. it? Yes. This is the BBC Light Program. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the goon show. Uh, Harry Seacombe, Spike Milligan, and Peter Sellers, and it was a BBC radio comedy from 1950 through 1959, so all of the 50s, and uh, it was completely nonsensical, anarchic, uh, chaotic, but it always had a, it had the comic logic of traditional British nonsense, you know, uh, double meanings, uh, it wouldn't be so far as puns, but definitely double meanings, um, sort of 4 a.m., you haven't slept in a day and a half logic, uh, very absurdist stuff, uh, taxi cabs explode into existence. I'll do the talking money out here. Right, and I'll put in the punctuation. Nedib, comma. Um, <laughs> how would you like to earn five pounds? Question mark. All you have to do is to go and collect the rent from Death Grange. Full stop. I, I'm going to actually uh, 
because you know there's uh, there there's what we love and what we know about uh, about you know the BBC stuff that's um, centric to the British Isles, and then there's the BBC stuff that's made its way over to the United States, right. and you know I'll I'll simplify it for other listeners and basically say that the Goon Show, although it's not maybe directly 100% a, a uh, you know it's not a direct lead-in to monty python's flying circus it definitely shares a lot of the dna and it could easily be counted as one of the precursors that kind of led the way for the pythons being able to do what they ended up doing absolutely and all all six of them well all five of the british ones terry gilliam didn't really hear it he was in minnesota um but all five British pythons absolutely underlined the Goon Show yep. as a direct influence. Um, as did the Beatles. They were heavily influenced by the Goon Show. Uh, John Lennon's sense of humor. And he was like, for a... We think of him as this like, uh, I'm very angry and I'm going to be mad at the government and about the culture and I'm going to be mad some more. He was a really funny guy. And he had a, a him, he and Yoko both had really wicked senses of humor. And John's come straight out of the Goon Show. We included that recording of a cockerel for people who like that sort of thing. <laughs> and um, and now here is a recording for people who don't like that sort of thing. Uh, the fact that, uh, like, uh, I and the Walrus, he wrote that because he got word that an English teacher was analyzing Beatles lyrics. So he wrote I and the Walrus <laughs> just to screw with this one guy because he thought it'd be funny. Like, that's, it's so, uh, oh, I love it. I wonder what the deeper meaning is behind Cuckoo Cachoo. Exactly. I think about that to this very day. That's not true. I mostly think about sandwiches. Anyway. Ooh. Yeah. That's, oh, man, now I want a sandwich. Yeah. I want so anyway, a... you want a what? Go on. <laughs> but, a, but, an but it's your show. sandwich with mustard? That's the No, I want, a, I want a deli sandwich, like one of those big old Italians with, like, all of the, uh, the meat sticking out the side. Yeah, all, um, every meat you can have. Marmoset yeah, meat. Yeah. Emu meat. Yeah, well, yeah, e- the the emus are the easiest because they uh, because they cut themselves. Anyway, um, you uh, you were going to tell us about the goon show. Sorry, I'm having trouble following following that. I'm bemused. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I apologize in advance and afterwards. Anyway, so the Goon Show it was the three principal performers, Spike Milligan, Harry Seacombe, Peter Sellers. Yes, that Peter Sellers. The Pink Panther, Dr. Strangelove, Being There, The Muppet Show, dressed as a, a, an opera Viking, helmeted, goofy goofball saying, uh, There is no real me. Yeah, that Peter Sellers. This is this was his big breakout performance. Was uh, the biggest comedy on the radio for a decade. Right. 
So it wasn't like, you know, an underground thing. It was a huge success. And in England, it's still on the air. Uh, BBC Four airs it once a week. And the only reason I know that as an American living in Merca, I uh, found it on the BBC Four Extra website. They have this week's episode and the previous usually four yeah. Um, but recently they've added it so there's like 70 up on there now. So, oh my God, go listen to all of them because they're all great. Yeah, and just prior to starting to record, I, I had a look at this as well because I wanted to um, prove Dan wrong like a jerk. But, uh, of course, he turned out to be right. <laughs> uh, Every yeah. time. Curses foiled again. Um, but, yeah, if you Google. I um, swear the, the Mayans invented Nintendo. I know. And you know what? There's 4,682 hits on Google that say they don't, and two hits that said they did. But why, tell you. why are there so many hits that say they don't? Why are they denying it so hard? Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, if the, there's the layers to deny. Yeah, it's just the layers of the onion need to be peeled back here. Yeah. Anyway, if you Google Goon Show BBC... Um, it's, uh, Radio 4 Extra has piles of episodes and, um, every, every episode description is just fantastic. Um, they also just have piles. That's a joke for British people. Ah, they got it straight too. Um, Ned is quitting nicotine, but Gripped Pipe Thine has other ideas. End of the regular series. Nettie Sigun must plunder a sunken Spanish galleon. Um, galleon. Anyway, they're fantastic. And they play with that same level of nonsensical silliness that you find in Python, yes. that you find in um, some of the uh, kind of early 90s um, Adult Swim style awkward absurdist comedy. Um, yeah. It's... It's and, and the great thing about The Goon Show is that when you think about radio comedy, uh, I think that even subconsciously without people realizing it, a lot of what they're thinking about is this kind of template that was put in place by The Goon Show that became standard issue for everyone else that um, kind of came after them. It was, it was like, OK, well, you know, these guys set the standard. It's ridiculous. We have to be this level of ridiculous. But first, our glorious national anthem. have the courage the thing that the goons did that created that um that new normal that influence down the decades is in the 20s 30s 40s on both sides of the ocean radio comedy was basically vaudeville in front of microphones it was double acts uh it was husband and wife and the lady's dumb and the guy's 
he's like the the fast talking straight man and she's the idiot with the funny jokes uh like george and gracie um it was i mean for for goodness sake uh uh edgar bergen a famous ventriloquist had a wildly successful radio program he did ventriloquism on the radio think about that that was radio that's impressive. It's that, not like I that's mean, the thing just is, like, it's not impressive. The, the on mere stage decision, or yeah. television, it's impressive. On the radio, well, it is the opposite of impressive. Well, I mean, also, or, or, I mean, we're talking about. Uh, I'm assuming that the ventriloquist you're talking about, like 1950s, 1960s, something like that. Uh, 30s, 40s, 50s. 30s, 40s, 50s. Okay, so yeah, yeah. even then, so it was. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's, Mortimer, that's Mortimer Snurd. Those guys was the yeah, man. so that's anything to fill up broadcast space during that period of time. Yeah, but know? these were also the top of the top of the top of vaudeville, right? You know, uh, the reason that Edgar Bergen got a radio program was because he was killing it in the theaters across the country for right. decades. Um, Bert Lahr, who played the Cowardly Lion, uh killed it in vaudeville uh not too successful in radio and tv jack benny killed it george and gracie killed it george burns gracie allen um you know all these folks who ended up on the radio were pulled out of the the absolute top of the vaudeville clubs right which is great and they're excellent performers the flip side of that is radio for the first 20 years was vaudeville minus the visual aspect it was just audio vaudeville right and sometimes it was you know hey it's we're here and we're putting on a show and oh who's this that just walked in uh and sometimes it was more like a sitcom like uh yeah um lucille ball before she was on i love lucy was on a radio sitcom my fate my favorite husband right it was almost like lucy yeah it was lucy and desi without lucy and desi um, it was Lucy being and able to be guy, seen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, it was a pretty good show. It was, a, you know, it was like a 1950 radio sitcom. But the thing that the Goon Show did was they made it, this only works in audio. And that was new. <laughs> you think this house is a mirage, eh? <laughs> You'll soon see. <laughs> It's vanished. Gone. You all right? A mirage. I told you it was. Oh! Eccles, what happened? I was upstairs. Because historically, any sort of performance, you had to go to a theater and see it. So if a, if a Shakespearean you know, fool character is walking around drunk and talking to the audience. It's funny because he's there talking to you and you can see him lean over. Um, And in vaudeville, the guys on stage are sitting there throwing stuff at each other or swallowing swords or doing a crazy dance or juggling or singing or whatever. And you can see what they're doing. So that adds to the fun. Radio, you only get the audio aspect of it, which today is like, yeah, no duh. But in 1950, this was still being figured out. 
and the what the goon show did was they made jokes that only work in radio so many of the jokes and a lot of it uh it, after the radio show they did a tv show called the telegoons where it was they made puppets of the goon show characters and there was a comic book as well um where they had the characters you know and you could see them do stuff and see what they were doing and see the crazy things happening and it's just not as fun because when it's outside of your imagination it's not as insane Right. When it's grounded in something you can point at, it's not as uh, unexpected. Yeah. Like uh, there's a, you know, little things like there's a, it's almost a throwaway joke where uh, there's one scene, Nettie is going into uh, to Major Bloodnock's office and he, he comes up and he's like, he comes up to the door and it's, Hello, Major Bloodnock. Hello, Major Bloodnock. Hello, hello. And he goes, come in, it's you that's outside. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I, I, I messed that up. I messed that up. Well, no, they, they flipped it around. It's, I, it's, yeah, I yeah, flipped yeah. it around just now. So it's like, uh, come in, it's you that's outside. Yeah, that's that's my Major right. Bloodlock imitation. But it's, right. I screwed it up, but it's still, it's a joke that only works if you can't see that, he, if you can see that he's outside, then there's no joke. Right. Help me out. I'm disguised as one of the piano strings. Which string are you? I think I'm a G string. So that's why I can't see you. Now that I'm not sure which string I am, so you better play a scale. Do. No. Re. No. Me. Me, that's me. <laughs> Help me out. Ah, thank you. Good heavens, Mariotti, you're two feet taller than you used to be. How did that happen? Some swine sent in a piano tuner. <laughs> well, you always were musical. There's another one that's really great where uh, uh, one of Peter Sellers' characters, uh, Henry Crun, who's this, you know, 200-year-old man. He's just this ancient uh, old man. And uh, Nettie Seagoon, who was played by Harry Seacombe, he's sort of the main character, the protagonist on uh, all the episodes. Uh, Nettie goes to Harry's shop and he's ordering something or writing a telegram or something. He's like, okay, I want, uh, you know, I want you to send, uh, you know, the, the, the number is 131-131, you know, uh, Central Crossing Road, Central Crossing Road, London, England, London, England. NW16 and no, it's no use. I'd better go get a pencil. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and it's, it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> it's you become an accessory to the joke. You are aiding and abetting the joke because it's all about the expectations that you brought with yourself. Right. And you didn't realize you were carrying it. And they're like, uh, uh, I got you. I, I tricked you. Yeah, it's the it's those. Um, and it's. Uh, it's um, television and radio um, listening sets of expectations almost. Uh, I, I mean, I, I hate to be, you know. 
it's programming. I mean, that's really what it is. It's that mm. your your mind has been subconsciously programmed to expect, I mean, going all the way back to, it, and it doesn't matter which generation you were raised in, right? Whether you were raised in during their period of time or whether, you know, you were raised, or you know, like like us growing up with um, uh, Muppets and stuff like that and, and Sesame Street. Uh, there's a certain, you become accustomed to a certain series of events have to occur to begin a sketch to have the sketch have its rising action to right. bring the sketch to its peak and and then to conclude the sketch and all of that includes these little mechanisms that are used in um radio and in television that are used in the sitcom that are used in you know the the parody sitcoms that the, the muppet characters use on sesame street that um and that's and the keep reason I keep coming back to sesame street is because it's it's one of the earliest iterations of our brains being programmed to come to accept sketch comedy format absolutely because it's the simplest easiest presentation of a sketch template it's it's four to eight minutes of a setup oh the sounds associated with it yeah right one to four yeah two to three minutes right yeah but it's like and and you think about that because you you think uh, about i'm sorry Go ahead. But no, I, go ahead. It's just, yeah, you know, a three-year-old has no attention span. And right. it's not a TV thing. It's a three-year-old thing. You know, in right. 1600, three-year-olds had no attention span. Yeah. And it's like that 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 commonality of... it. This is where I was trying to go with the, with, with the Sesame Street analogy is that then if you, if you go backwards with, you know, the, the young kids programming and the way that all the way, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, 70s, 80s, you know, you, you choose an era and there is children's programming that is getting people used to getting ready to digest sitcoms, right? Um, yeah. For the 80s, it was Sesame Street. For the uh, 50s, 60s, it was Howdy Doody Show. Um, and, and then I'm just having trouble kind of filling them in mentally. But basically... You've got people getting used to subconsciously the the wind up and the pitch, the hit, and then the the home run. Yeah, uh, that are part of each piece of a sketch template, and so that just gets built into your head subconsciously, and so yeah. you're expecting knock knock knock. Oh, here comes the guy! Right, in right. walks the guy. Now there's going to be some silly lines and. Then there's some rising action. I can't find my watch. You know, oh God, where's the last time you found, you know, left your watch? And then the conclusion, and then they walk out. And then there's some laughter, right? Right. And that's one of the things that's just incredibly fun. And, you know, if I'm, I apologize if I'm taking the wind out of your sails here, but um, one of my favorite things, one of my favorite things so far about listening to The Goon Show, and I've not listened to as much as you have, but um, the beauty of the way that The Goon Show um plays with your expectations really revolves around the strength and the power and the importance of the sound effects that they had available because yes. without those sound effects with, with without the volume of sound effects and this is the 50s uh, yeah. so we're talking about we're talking about a series of record players all routing to a common audio output and you know a little bit later on they finally were able to fit 
more than 20 to 30 sound effects on the records they could get to the point where they could do hundreds of sound effects on some reel-to-reel tapes but early on you know they had to fight with the fact that they they had to they had to be somebody was walking on gravel and then there had to be a knock on the door and then somebody had to open the door there had to be a creaky door right and then there had to be an explosion and then there had to be the sound of a penguin you know yeah and and all of that had to be ready to go. I'm sure I'm a collector. What do you collect? Firewood. <laughs> I pay two francs a bundle. Two francs? Stop throwing my wooden egg! <laughs> you insult me, we must fight another duel. Three paces. <laughs> Thank you. Honor is satisfied. You know, classically radio, you would have your your typical radio sound effects box. You'd have a guy on stage with the actors, and the actors right. are sitting there looking at their pieces of paper with the script on it. And off to the side, in front of a microphone, there's a guy with a, a table with a little patch of dirt and a little patch of gravel and a little patch yeah. of, you know, wood and right. a pair of shoes that he would clomp, clomp, clomp. clomp oh, clomp, and sandpaper. Clack, clack, clack. Because sandpaper can be used for so many yep. sound effects. It's sandpaper. crazy. Um, uh, you would have like a wooden box with glass glassware yeah. and dishware in there to, to make shatter sounds yeah. um a little about the size of a laptop door to open and slam yeah um and uh and a gun uh, a gun with blanks um and uh and a telephone bell and that was probably it yeah and that's pretty much all you needed to tell because Either a comedy or a drama yeah. template radio show. And 99% of radio programs in the 30s, 40s, that's all you needed. A door for someone coming in and going out. Yep. Oh, someone's on the phone. Oh, someone's walking around. Oh, right. I've been shot. You know, that's... And if you listen, <laughs> if you listen to some of those old programs, uh, you know, you can hear it when they talk about, like, Hey, put down that knife. What are you doing? Don't come any closer. Why are you stabbing me? Why are you holding it above my chest like that? Ah! (laughs) Like, you can't, you can't hear a knife on the radio. So you, so you have all this clumsy acting. Right. And that's where, you know, they'd have maybe like, this is where I was talking about the sandpaper for many uses for, for sounds. Um, You know, the sandpaper against, uh, cloth to make it sound like the cloth was ripping yeah. sandpaper against sandpaper to make it sound like something was sliding um yeah sandpaper very quickly chafed against each other to sound like um fighting um it, it was really wild the, the the things that the old school foley artists would you know be able to get away with in terms of audio but no absolutely i mean w- what you're saying is the other half of it was that if it wasn't an actor going why are you holding that in front of me what are you about to do? Oh, no. You had to have a narrator, you know, then leading along going and exactly at that moment. So and so held up the knife and went right after the hero, you know. Money out him. Take a letter in gargling fluid to the postmaster general. Dear general. According to the shape of my knees. I believe that an illegal raffle for the equator is being held. And for certain monies, I will reveal the organizer. 
Let's have that back, please. You were talking about uh, having records and tapes. And, uh, well, for the, for the most part, you just had a sound effects guy. In the BBC, around the time that The Goon Show started, slightly before, well, not slightly before, it's like it existed before, they had the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. And this was the sound department. Um, and they had a library of music, um, the equivalent of like, you know, royal, royalty-free or they owned the rights to it. And it was just stock music and sound effects that they had. And they would just go, we need this kind of music. Okay, here's a record. See if that'll do. Great, thank you. Around this time radio started to push that forward and the goon show was one of the ones that pushed them the hardest because they would get a script that says you know we need like you said we need the sound of a penguin well we don't have that we have to go record it okay uh we need uh we need the sound of i'm trying to think of something before i get to like the big one um, like the sound of a railway train or, you know, the sound of a tree falling down, stuff like that. Yeah. Well, like those were rare, but they still had them. But like there's one scene where they, uh, they travel by piano. And so they needed a, a record of a piano playing and it speeds up as it drives off. <laughs> or there's one where he uh he says uh what is it it's it's something about oh it's like hey is that that tricycle against that wall is that yours oh yeah yeah that's mine all right let's go let's get on the tricycle it's like oh no the tricycle's not mine it's the wall all right well let's take the wall then and so then there's a weird sound and the announcer wallace green said that sound was the sound of driving away on a wall. <laughs> and they had to think, well, what would driving away on a wall sound like? Okay, here's a record for that. But I think probably the crowning achievement, the one that gets cited the most anyway, was there's one where someone eats a bad oyster. It's Fred the Oyster. And uh, whenever they needed a stupid throwaway name, it was always Fred which to me is still really funny. I think Fred is like the funniest name. It's a generic plain name, but it's also really funny sounding. Yeah. Meanwhile, Fred's around the world are now beginning angry letter writing campaigns. To hey, the Dan and Aaron, like Arama. Sorry. Sorry, Fred's. I love <laughs> you. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a, on a book uh, where with someone named Fred and it just, when, when the concept hit me, I just fell over laughing. And so I was like, well, I have to write this book now. <laughs> um, but, uh, so yeah, so it's Fred the Oyster, and he gets eaten. And then a little bit later, they go, we take you now to inside Nettie Seagoon's stomach, where Fred the Oyster is being digested. And there's like a minute long sequence of just wacky, crazy, bizarre sound effects of this giant, weird mutant oyster 
being digested as it passes through <laughs> Nettie's stomach. We take you now into Mr. Seagoon's stomach to hear how the oyster has fared. And here, along the great duodenal tract of the great seagoon intestine, I see approaching the boiled spuds he had at breakfast, followed closely by that foul meatloaf salad he noshed at the BBC canteen. There's no sign yet of the oyster, but yes, here now comes a dirty great dollop of steamed duff and three quarts of mild that he woofed down during the rehearsals. And yes, here comes four pounds of mixed chocolate and eight pints of tea, soup, licorice, all sorts, and lastly, the oyster. this come from what you know and it's it's a real highlight of the bbc radiophonic workshop that they were that they had the creativity to put this together for spike Um, yeah i was i was actually just reading about that and um it's really entertaining where they were talking about you know um it wasn't just it wasn't just one sound effect right because because how could it be you know and they talk about it being a series of overlaying burps, whoops from oscillators, water splashes, cork-like pops, and light, light artillery blasts. Not heavy yeah. artillery blasts, because <laughs> yeah. that would be putting it too tell. far. Yeah. It's a subtle distinction. And uh, it might be the oscillators, but it, uh, there's something sounds like a donkey in there. But, uh, and the BBC... Radiophonic Workshop, or right when the Goon Show is ending, a young woman joined named, uh, it's uh, Delia Derbyshire, but in Americans it's Delia Derbyshire. And uh, she is the electronic proto-genius. She did the Doctor Who theme. In like 1962 or whatever, whenever oh, Doctor Who fantastic. started, that's fantastic. That's her. that's fantastic. Um, and so she she was on the they they gave it to her and she's like, oh well, yeah, I got this, and she did yeah. it. And uh, she and another radiophonic person, Brian Hodgson, and this musician David Vorhouse, the three of them started a group called White Noise and made an album called An Electric Storm, which was like crazy influential. Um, as much as beep as uh, as the British are into like they're way more into like electronic music than us. Yeah. Um. So much of that comes out of that record. 
And that was like 1966, 67, something like that. Um, but yeah, Delia Derbyshire, 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 Derbyshire. Yeah, it's, it's we're not British. We shouldn't try. <laughs> I know. I feel bad for her because I'm yeah. mangling her name. But yeah, it's spelled Derbyshire, but it's like Derbyshire. There's yeah. a really good documentary about her. Um, that everyone should look at. Like, I, I don't care about electronic music, but I was completely enthralled. Right. Um, and she sort of, like, got overwhelmed and left and, till the day she died, just sat in her, in her house taking more notes and making more tapes, and she just, she kept doing it and never put any of it out after she left uh, in, like, 1970 oh, or so. Now I have to go dig. I'm, I I wonder how I I wonder if she ever crossed paths with um, Walter uh, Nay Wendy Carlos, who uh, did the uh, synth soundtrack to A Clockwork Orange, who is uh, one of the famous early. Um, Pro- I would uh, think probably because I mean that British electronic music in like 66 to 71 I think it was 71 when Clockwork came out I I gotta imagine that is a small club yeah that's (laughs) kind of what I was thinking as well there's probably like a dozen people doing it I can't I can't imagine uh but yeah I I, probably but I mean that's a complete guess I talk to the tree That's why they put me away. <laughs> yeah, anyway. But anyway, yeah, so the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, this is also the show where that found its legs. And then when after it ended, Delia comes in and basically invents electronic music. Yeah. Um, and that sounds like blowing smoke and exaggeration, but it's not like she was a certified genius, right? Um, so yeah, their their sound effects are something something else. I I just found this this quote um, about the sound effects, which I think is absolutely fantastic, and it uh, <laughs> it reminds me of um, my favorite moments in in producing audio for various things but uh one of the one of the fx uh one of the fx instructions one of the scripts read and this is this is only this only is the most entertaining if you read it in a british accent because that's how you can imagine either milligan or sellers writing it uh the the fx instruction in one script read sound effect of two lions walking away bumping against each other if you can't get two lions two hippos will do <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. Spit that gun and I'll one. Oh, good night. Hyden, here, put on this record of a bandage. Echoes, for heaven's sake, answer that phone. Oh, Is that her groin, nine toxian fun ting? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Dr. Seagoon? Give it to me. Hello, Inspector. That stuff growing on Tower Bridge. Hair? I think it's hair. Hair? Good heavens. Hello? Hello? Hello, 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 hello? Curse! He's hung up. Come in! Oh. 
So let me back up. Now that we're, you know, three hours into this conversation, let me back up. So the gist of The Goon Show. <clears throat> the principal actors, as I said, like three times now, Harry Seacombe, Spike Milligan, Peter Sellers. The first two seasons, there was also Michael Benteen. Sadly, like none of those recordings exist. Maybe a few episodes, but almost nothing. Um, the announcer was Wallace Greenslade, and he was very, very posh, very, very funny, and they played with that nonstop. Right. About a third of the way into each episode, uh, Max Gildray would play on the harmonica with the band. Um, just, you know, some pop song from the day. Right. And then further on, Ray Ellington and his band would play and Ray Ellington would sing. And he was British, but his, at least one of his parents were American. So he has an, he has a, an African-American accent. He's a, a, a black British guy. But because one, one or maybe both of his parents were American, he has an American accent. Hmm. And uh, he's phenomenal. I love Ray Ellington. He's like legitimately a great musician and a fun singer. And he has a good sense of humor. And they used him on the show when they needed another, another guy. Like uh, because of his American accent and because he sounded obviously like a black man. How dare you talk while I'm kissing your wife? Who do you think you are? <laughs> I'm Toulouse to check the famous French Impressionist. All right, do Al Jolson. Mammy! Splendid. Shall we go? I'd love to. Oh. Uh, there was one scene where they're in, uh, uh, they're in Scotland, and they go to the, the Scottish guards, and Ray Ellington is one of them. <laughs> it's, just, it's, you know, the, the other three of them putting on Scottish accents, and then Ray Ellington, right. man... I don't know what I'm doing up here. <laughs> uh, and, you know, apologies. If I, I wasn't trying to do a black accent. I was doing a Ray Ellington imitation. Letter writing campaigns have been kicked off right uh, as you said that, too. I so. lost the Freds. Yeah. Now I lost everybody else. Yeah, we're, we're now deep into litigation. Anyway. Um, but, yes, yeah, so, will... uh, so that was the, the people that you heard on it. Spike Milligan, besides being one of the central stars, uh, also did, I would, it's hard to say how much each person contributes, but he probably did about half the writing. A lot of episodes, right. he got the only writing credit. Um, the second most common was a guy named uh, Larry Stevens. He did a lot of the writing on the episodes, too. And actually, a book just came out, like, last month about Larry Stevens, called it's all in the mind because hmm. that was a, a common sign-off in a couple seasons of the show would end with something completely bizarre happening and then wallace green said it's all in the mind you know <laughs> uh, and the, yeah the closing theme song would be like ding dong the witch is dead like okay that's your theme music you weirdo <laughs> <laughs> i love it just every bit of it's just completely silly but uh so those are the main actors and the writers and musicians the let me give you the character list so these these are not the minor characters that show up once or twice a year these are the main characters that appear almost every episode, if not every episode. Right. 
Harry Seacombe played Nettie Seagoon, and he might once in a while put on a northern accent and be a northerner. Uh, Spike Milligan played the French villain, Count Jim Knees Moriarty. Um, he played the little old lady, Minnie Bannister. The, uh, I'm, I just, I'm reading off my notes. The astonishingly stupid teenager, Eccles, who's my <laughs> favorite character. Oh, yes, the famous Eccles. <laughs> uh, if there was the, uh, sometimes, uh, in the major blood knock, uh, scenes, a nervous soldier would come in. Um, and fall over um blue bottle was a little kid that peter sellers played and blue bottle had a little or no uh little jim it was blue bottle's cousin i I think it was eccles's cousin little jim and it was just and no one could understand him except eccles uh-huh, right. Uh-huh. What? What is that sticking at the top of your boot wearing a cap? That is my nephew, Little Jim. Ah, hello, Little Jim. Okay. I do not understand what he is saying. <laughs> Say that again, little Jim. Okay. He said he doesn't understand what he's saying either. <laughs> Gladys, which is Gladys. Yes. We need you. <laughs> Gladys was also known as Mr. Throat. <laughs> uh, and then there uh, also a really frantic guy named Adolphus Adolphus Springs, uh, and then and then Peter Sellers. So that was all one guy. That was all That's Spike Milligan. Peter Sellers, freaking amazing, played Hercules Grit Pipe Thin, who is usually the central villain, and Moriarty was his sidekick. Uh, the flatulent pervert, Major Bloodknock, uh, the the uh, British Army officer who, uh, when he was introduced, usually uh, there would be the sound of like uh, mad scientist bubbles, like right. Oh, I shouldn't have had that, Carrie. No more curried eggs for me. <laughs> you know, one time he they introduced him and he was, uh, you know, he was writing a letter saying that, uh, you know, he was he was ordering more French postcards for some, you know, stuff like that. That was back in the day. French postcards were full of naked people. Cast these flies. <laughs> dear, dear, dear. How can these naturalist magazines publish pictures like these? Huh? Look at 
this photo here. A happy group climbing trees. <laughs> I don't know how they don't get scratched. <laughs> well, I shall be glad when my ten-year subscription runs out, I tell you. <laughs> I must remember to have these copies bound in brown leather and labelled A History of the English-Speaking Peoples. Um, he played many, many Bannisters. Friend, husband, life, partner, whatever. Henry Crun. So Henry Crun and Minnie Bannister were always together. Um, whenever they had an American, Peter Sellers would do it. And that was Ernest Hearn. This is Ernest Hearn of the Hearn, Radio Hearns. Because <laughs> they called Americans the Hearns. Because we sound yeah. like, whenever we talk, it just sounds like Hearn, 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 Hearn. So we always use an R whenever we're talking <laughs> about it. our things. And it's right. Especially the like yeah. 50s. Oh yeah, this is a real, this is a real sweet deal. Oh, I can. What do I take you to get you riding home in this car today? Yeah, it's funny because like the the voice of America in terms of um, the radio announcer voice was also the same voice of America in terms of the used car salesman voice. Yeah, and that voice has never changed. <laughs> I mean, and it's also the same as like the Harry Truman voice and the Dwight oh, yeah. Eisenhower voice. You know? Right. Right. Um, and it's uh, the the Hearn voice is very similar to the president uh, in Doctor Strangelove that Peter Sellers yeah. plays. Yeah. <laughs> can Can you turn the music down, <laughs> Nikolai, Vladimir, whatever his name is? Hello, uh, hello, Dimitri. Dimitri, that's his name. Hello, Dimitri. Yes, Dimitri. Yes, could you turn the music down? <laughs> yes, yeah. no, Dimitri. Um, if, if you could tell the ladies to leave the room, please, Dimitri. <laughs> well, no, it's very important, Dimitri. It's a matter of national security. The, the nuclear... Uh, oh. Yes, okay. <laughs> I love that. Well, when he, could you... he just deflates. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop. He <laughs> uh, plays it so well. He's so good. Mild-mannered Mr. President. He's oh, so good God. at... Yeah. The leader of the free world is this meek yeah. little dweeb. Right. He's so good. Uh, sorry. Well, I I know that you're sorry, Dimitri. I'm just saying I am also sorry as well. <laughs> well, then we're both sorry. So good. Uh, and Peter Sellers also plays uh, the little boy Blue Bottle. And I didn't know this, that a Blue Bottle is, is a type of fly. I didn't know that, but that's where he got the name. Then I used a special blue bottle mind over matter plan. I stared at them <laughs> with my undefeatable power of eyes look, and I willed their kilts to drop off. Splendid. Yeah! <laughs> I looked the kilt straight in the sparrings, and I went strange. Fall down, naughty kilt, I said in my mind. Strange, strange. Dotted lies, out of eyes towards kilt, showing direction of power. <laughs> Little kilt, you cannot stay up against my superior North Finchley willpower. Extra heavy strains. Strange! <laughs> Dotted lines change to daggers showing increase of power. 
Boot, 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 boot. Strange. And then, rip, whoosh, thud. What happened? My trousers fell down. So yeah, so Spike Milligan plays a, a zillion characters. Peter Sellers plays a zillion characters. Harry Seacom right. mostly sticks to the Nettie Seagoon, but Nettie is also the main protagonist. And he's the one that we follow through. And every single character that I just mentioned, a crazy idiot. Everyone's a crazy... Yep. There's, it's, it's very similar to what we were talking about in the first episode with the young ones. No one is likable. Yeah. Sometimes you root for Nettie just by default, but then he does something stupid. You're like, oh my God, this guy's a moron. I'm not rooting for him. Yeah. They're just, they're all abysmal. They're all failures. They're all stupid. They're all crazy. It's fabulous. It's completely yeah. wonderful. <laughs> and I actually, I, I want to jump in for a second here, and I want to note that one of the most amazing things about Sellers is that, um, and this this comes from um, some other uh, 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 Stanley Kubrick course that I took years ago. Um, the um, one of the things that was really wild about Sellers was that he would later on in life kind of talk about how he didn't really feel at home being himself. Yeah. That, um, and, and this was shown to me in a very fascinating way in terms of the way that he would, there was this footage of him from when he's doing an interview uh, and it was like a taped interview where they were going to cut the segments up and there would be leading questions that would be asked uh, and then a variety of different local news places could then intersperse oh, uh, sellers okay. doing pre-recorded responses in with whoever their local TV journalist was. Um, and there's what the professor was showing us is there's this like very rare moment of Peter Sellers not knowing he's on camera at the beginning of the recording before he turns on the caricature of Peter Sellers. Yeah. And he's very mild mannered and he's very timid and he's a little bit grumpy. And he's like, uh, uh, are we recording yet? Because, um, I'd, I'd really like to go home. I, you know, huh. I'm, I'm, you know, let's, let's go ahead and knock this out as soon as we can, you know? And then as soon as he finds out that they're recording his face, his expression, his, his the wind in his chest, everything changes. Hello, I'm Peter Sellers. He and it just, up. He boots up, right, exactly. Yeah. And it's one of those things that you, you, you see and hear every once in a while when as, actors, but especially character actors, talk about being the variety of characters that they can live through vicariously versus being themselves. Is, you know, there's this, with with not all of them, but with, with some of them, there's this kind of discussion of, my God, you know, being being me is is nice and i i wouldn't trade it for the world but my goodness what i wouldn't give to be these 30 random characters that i <laughs> yeah. never have to come back to ever again and who will experience ridiculously stupid crazy things yeah um but it's so much fun that they are experiencing those things and i get to live that moment with them you know yeah yeah you get to live it ever so uh briefly I, yeah. I wonder, I've always wondered about those method actors. I don't know if method is, I, I don't know, I think it's gone out of 
fashion for some time now. But like uh, um, Dustin Hoffman was a big method guy. Yeah. Uh, famously, when they were when they were shooting Marathon Man, Dustin Hoffman was doing all this method stuff and getting himself all worked up. And Olivier tells him, uh, "Have you tried acting?" <laughs> and that's just the coldest. <laughs> deflation of a whole philosophy I've ever heard. Right, right. So brutal. Yeah. Brutal and satisfying. But yeah, I wonder if like those method actors uh, had a similar thing where it's like, well, I don't know who I am, so I'll just right. go all the way into this character and then all the way into this character. I mean, who knows? I know, I, I mean... I remember being a young teenager having an identity crisis. Who am I? Is you know what's fake? What's real? What's a put on? And then you get real problems and you relax. Yeah, right. (laughs) Like oh shit, I have crises to deal with now. Well, I guess I'm me. All right, now the baby is sick. I don't have time for this right now. Right, right, right. (laughs) Roof is leaking. Now I have to be a human being. Fuck. Oh, they yeah. they shut the water off. I guess I'll have to set this aside and get some money. There once was a beautiful moon. It was up in the sky, chum. When he said, what's the time? They replied, what? And the horse departed, leaving Spawn. But yeah, so so yeah, Peter Sellers is like sort of the, the, the go-to example of that sort of self-described, uh, selfless, centerless, actor who just loses himself because there is no self kind of a it's sort of it would be zen except it's very tense (laughs) he seems like a very tense uptight not fun to be around guy yeah because uh, you know i i almost feel like he was trying to his life it, it seems like his life was lived trying to get back to the recording studio where he could be that person and not not him as himself, you know. But then, like, the other side of that is Harry Seacombe, who just seems like the most fun, pleasant person to be around. He's just always fun. He's always laughing. He's the only one, well, not the only one, but the 90% of the time, if someone, if someone, uh, if someone breaks and, what do they call it? It's something morbid. Oh, they corpse is when you laugh on Mike. And the only one who corpses most of the time is Harry Seacum. Because he's just so entertained and delighted by this silly program that they're doing and what's going on. And that's wonderful to hear. I love it. And, you know, it gets poo-pooed as an easy laugh, but it's also just fun. Let him have fun. But yeah, Harry Seacum seemed like a, a wonderful person to be around. Um... And after the Goon Show, he went on to do a lot of, uh, I mean, he was an established, not established, but he was like a trained singer. Um, and he would do some silly singing on the Goon Show. But he went on to do, he did a bunch of, uh, he did some records, some Christian records. He became sort of a TV pastor kind of a guy. Um, so I, I will jump in and, and, and I'll note real quick that like, uh, this is just personal anecdote, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. you know, um, anytime that I watch any sort of uh, comedy, whether it's improv or, or a sketch or situation or whatever, if there's that moment where an actor 
or an actress um, essentially breaks the fourth wall by kind of having a laugh at the very situation that they're in or or the sketch that they're doing. I, I mean, that that is just like it's it's like candy. It's like dessert. Yeah. It's it's just like so delicious because, you know, these these characters are trying their hardest to be uh, the the most authentic versions of the characters that they're putting in front of you. And then randomly, you know, they'll they'll hit that line that they they know as actors is going to make them lose their shit. Yeah. And there they are. The actor laid bare because it is funny as all get out what it what it what it is that they're doing. And and it's beautiful it's beautiful to me because it helps highlight to you, the audience member, how absurd the scene is itself. And I also think it kind of helps remind the audience, oh, by the way, this is really funny. If this is this funny that the actor can't keep his, you know, shit together, I really hope that you're having fun as well. Yeah. Um like one of my favorite examples is um, uh, Bill Hader's character that, that used to come on um, SNL. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. Um, the nightlife dude, guy. Yeah, the night. Yeah, I can't remember the character. Sven, I think. Stefan. Um, Stefan, that was it. It just yeah. came to me. Yeah, Stefan. Yeah. Yeah, he yeah. was great. And, oh my God, every time that he covered his mouth because you could tell he was about to lose it, I, I, I was like a giggle fit. I well, you know what it was is... Right before he went on, uh, the writer who did that, I was thinking it was John Mulaney, but it might have been, it was probably someone else who wrote those those jokes, would change him at the last minute and put him on the cue <laughs> card. So he <laughs> had no fantastic. idea. It was the first time that he saw those jokes. Right. Oh, and that's so fantastic. it was his natural response. That, that makes it even more It's the same thing they do now with uh, Jost and Michael Che where they will write jokes for each other and yes. they don't see them. And then they're like, yeah. Oh God, don't make me say this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where they read the cue cards and they're like, Oh please, please, please yeah, don't, please don't. Yeah. It's yeah. great. It's fun. I wonder, could this aged man be the string thief? No, no, no. no. That's a loudie, my dear. That's the only thing. Put your fingers in your ears, Henry. Oh, all right, all right. Go on, please. All right. Uh... The robbery has been done. Everyone will be so... Dear listeners, this disjointed conversation is being caused by Mr. Crumb moving his fingers in and out of his ears, thereby causing an intermittent break in sound. So yeah, so that was Sellers and that was Seacom. And then Spike Milligan is the one that I am most drawn to. I adore Spike Milligan. I've read most of his books. Um, his first novel, Pacoon, is endlessly funny. It's a it's a almost a novella. It's only like 120 pages, but from the first the first like two pages, three pages, it's actually beautiful, elegant writing, setting up the sun coming through this small town on the uh on the border of Ireland and Northern Ireland where they're getting ready to draw the line and, uh, and the sun is coming up and all these things are happening and it's passing over the trees and the lawn. 
And then you meet this idiot who's who gets beaten up by his wife hurling things at him <laughs> and yelled at to go get a job. And, and it's like, okay, we're off to the races. Let's go. Yeah, right. And the first thing that happens in Pakun is the, the guy looks at his legs. So he says, hey, what's up with these legs? You call these legs? <laughs> and the narrator talks to him. He says, well, yeah. He's like, who made these legs? Oh, well, I did, I guess. Well, who are you? I'm the writer. Well, what's the... Why don't you give me some real legs? He's <laughs> like, well, they go all the way up, don't they? <laughs> you know, oh, and it's it's not, and then it's 120 pages of that, of just a bunch of crazy idiots, and it's fantastic. The other beautiful note that um, I came across as I was looking at um, uh, the the stuff about the Goon Show is that. Another person that was uh, heavily influenced by the absurdity of the Goon Show was uh, Douglas Adams, who wrote yeah. um, Hitchhiker's Guide. Yeah, yeah. And when you listen to the Goon Show and you start to kind of fall into the general rhythm of the gags in the show, you begin to develop an understanding of the kind of poetic feel of some of the gags. And the, the flow of where the guys are going to come up. And yes, they're absurdist. And the whole idea is to keep you, the audience member, guessing. But at the same time, there's a certain pattern to it. And in, in my opinion, Python loves the absurd side of it. But Adams loves the rhythm of it. And the and, language of it. And the language of it, exactly. Because and, where, and it, it all goes back to expectations where yeah. your typical stand-up or your typical double act or your typical vaudeville right. it's expectation 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 joke yeah straight exactly. straight straight joke yeah and then the goons came in and they're like that's fun but you could also have the expectations of yeah of what happens when you hear a door open right what happens when you hear shoes well And harbinger Senapati. Come in. Come on, Min. Let's go up the top and trim the wicks. Come on, Min. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. named Spike Milligan gave me two guineas to take a long time walking up these steps. He said it helped him in his work. Yes, I know. Oh, now, men, light the wicks. Stew. 
It's like walking into a room and there's a whoopee cushion on the other side of the room. And you know that walking to the other side of the room will result in you sitting on the whoopee cushion and getting a laugh. Right. But that there's still a whole room that you could fill with whoopee cushion. <laughs> yeah. If you see that and it's sitting on the chair and you and you go, oh, okay. And then you take one step and you step on one. Yeah. There's, that's way more entertaining. That's more fun. And what Adams did that's similar to the goons is where the goons did that with audio and traditional stand-ups and jokes do it with situations, Adams did it with sentences. He did it with language. Like my go-to example of Adams, and I completely love it, is at the beginning of Hitchhiker's Guide where the Vogon ships hung in the air just the way that bricks don't. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it's so elegantly yeah. perfect. Right, right. And, just, and the whole... Oh, yeah, yeah. it doesn't. You're and right. The entire, <laughs> yeah, and the entire soliloquy about the whale, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and out of nowhere is a byproduct of the improbability machine. A whale manifested and was now falling. And now we spend... You know, a good three paragraphs <laughs> thinking, you know, listening in on what the whale is thinking as he falls. It's beautiful What's because that? Oh, that's the, so good. What's that big thing? Yeah. It's so coming up to meet me. Round, yes. Uh, it should have an ow sound. Ow, ow, ground, ground, ground. Yes. I think I'll call it the ground. Yes. Boy, it's coming awfully fast, isn't it? <laughs> And it's that type of it's it's that it's that voice. It's the poetry to those gags, yeah. which directly comes from the Goon Show. Absolutely, and I mean it, that yeah. whole generation, yeah, of any any funny person from the '60s, any creative British person in the '60s, right, and into the '70s, listened to the Goons as a kid, and they yeah. were warped by it. Yeah, exactly. they were bent by its gravitational pull. Yep. As well they should have been. Yeah. And they were better for it. And we all were. Grab my hand. I'll pull you off. Heckles. How did you get across the swamp without getting wet? I jumped on that log. That log? That's an alligator. Oh. I wonder why my legs kept getting shorter. (laughs) The way that they met uh, is completely entertaining. Uh, so they were all in the war. Um, they were all, I think Sellers was in the Air Force. He was in the RAF. And I did not know that, but that feels incredibly appropriate for Peter Sellers. Yeah. Sellers was in the RAF. I believe he was in Italy. And uh, they met him later. Uh, towards at like the end of the war, they met him in Italy. Um, but uh, Spike... And um, Harry met each other in, was it North Africa or was he in Italy by then? Because Spike started in North Africa in the Rommel campaign and then he went up to Italy. 
I think it was in Italy where he and uh, Harry Seacom met. And the way okay. that they met, uh, Spike was, uh, he was a gunner. He, he, he was in an artillery division, and his job was to run cable up towards enemy lines. Oh, my God. And then, so that they could start communicating and stuff, and then come back to where the giant guns were. Oh. And so, <laughs> someone on his, someone in his group uh, didn't do their job right, which ended in a howitzer rolling backwards down a hill. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Oh, that's, that's... It, it rolls to the end of a hill and falls off a cliff <laughs> and lands <laughs> about 10 feet away from a truck. <laughs> oh, my dear Lord. And Harry Seacombe is on the truck. Yeah. And he says this, how it's this giant gun falls from the sky in front of him. <laughs> and he looks up and he sees this little head of this, this guy named Milligan poke over the hill, over the cliff. And he goes, Oi, you see the gun come through here. <laughs> <laughs> and Seekum goes, Seekum goes, well, what color was it? <laughs> that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And they were friends forever from and there, so that's, right? Yeah, that's how they met. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> now listen, you don't think for ten years I'll be standing here on guard? I mutiny. I refuse to obey an order. There was nobody here to give any orders. I gave them myself. <laughs> And uh, and they were all musicians. They all played in jazz bands uh, before before they uh, entered the war. Uh, uh, Spike played trumpet. Harry sang. Peter played drums, uh, and then some piano. And yeah. I think Michael Benteen played something too. I don't remember right now. 
Um, but he was only in there for the first year or two. And he was in uh, one or two of the movies with them. They did, they did a, a handful of movies together. Let's Go Crazy and Down Among the Z-Men. Right. Uh, which, you know, they're pretty good. Uh, but the, uh, the, the, the really fun one is, I think it was 59 or 60, they did one called The Running, Jumping, and Standing Still Film. and that was directed by dick lester who then did a hard day's night and help oh cool yeah 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 so that was uh earlier work for him and again it's that small world but i love that the running jumping and standing still film it's just their titles Mm -hmm. even the titles are funny it's the thing what can we do here that's funny um, mm-hmm. here's a list of about 10 titles, um, right. of Goon Show episodes. The dreaded batter pudding hurler of Brexel on Sea. Excuse me, Bexel on Sea. The phantom head shaver of Brighton. The affair yeah. of the lone banana. <laughs> <laughs> Napoleon's piano. <laughs> yeah, the names on the episodes are fantastic. And that's actually what I was just I looking it. at earlier is... Yeah, the, every episode is just ridiculous. The terrible revenge of Fred Fu Manchu. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love that Fred Fu Manchu. Yeah, again, Fred. Uh, I love it. Yeah. The Flea. That's a great episode. Uh, Actually, I was just reading about Fred Fu Manchu a second ago, and uh, let's see. Yeah, there he is, Fred Fu Manchu, Chinese bamboo saxophonist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Appears as the eponymous villain in the terrible revenge of Fred Fu Manchu. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then there's also it was like a gong, boom, Emperor of the Universe, and that was his right. name was boom. It was the sound effect of a gong, and then he had a, a son, which was a smaller gong. <laughs> um, the mysterious punch up the conquer guy who goes around punching people in the nose. Nice. The string robberies. <laughs> this is, uh, the mountain eaters and Ned's atomic dustbin. <laughs> I love the string robberies is so good. And it, it goes to something that Americans miss. It, it gets lost in the translation with British comedy, especially of this right. era. After World War II... Americans, all the GIs came home and they had the GI Bill and you could buy a house and go to college and get a great career and everyone had money and money, money, everyone had security. Whereas in England, everything had been blown up. Yeah. And there was rubble and there was Mm -hmm. food shortages and money shortages and everything was still being rationed. And so there's, the Goon Show has a lot of that's uh, a well of comedy for them. Uh, you know, there's a line somewhere about uh, who's that gentleman in the brown paper suit? <laughs> and, yeah, right. <laughs> and the string robbery. Someone's going around stealing pieces of string from people. Um, right. uh So, yeah, that definitely. And uh, uh, Blue Bottle. Oh, my God. Blue Bottle is always... Because he's a little kid, all his stuff comes out of Cracker Jack boxes and cereal boxes. And right, so, right. December the 6th. Did sport with Mrs. Fitzsimmons. Oh. <laughs> and being suspicious of grip-type thin, I did place two stalwart guards outside the 
accused flees cell in Newgate Prison. You know, he's like, uh, and he, uh, the great thing about Blue Bottle is he always speaks his stage directions. <laughs> so you can imagine him doing it. And so he's like, uh, you know, Blue Bottle pulls out cardboard gun. Bang, bang, bang. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Blue Bottle puts on pirate outfit where the shirt is roughly because it's made from mom's drawers. <laughs> <laughs> and see that's the stuff that's fantastic because it also like it then brings it's not just the character itself is a funny voice it's a character combined with uh the meta of bringing the character into and out of the scene yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and yeah he's clearly reading from the script mm-hmm. um exactly um the flea is a is as far as just silly episodes the first like two and a half minutes of the flea is just fantastic this week the play is entitled Hurry, I'll miss my bus. 
3rd December, 1665. It grinds me time. Finding much snow without, it put on my belly binder and warm knees. Sported thereafter with Mrs. Fitzsimmons. And did hide me late at a Ward's coffee house to break my fast. Oh, good morrow, Master Peeps. Cappuccino? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just... It's just fun. It's great. It's very silly. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, it's... But uh, I keep jumping around, but Spike... The it's sort of like uh, earlier talking about Dealey uh, Derbyshire, where he was so he lived in his work and he was so overwhelmed by it. Yeah, and just I mean, today we have PTSD, and if you have PTSD, no one thinks you're a sissy. Yeah, right. They're like, right. wow, you went through something horrible. Obviously, mm-hmm. you're traumatized. Right. It's taken very seriously today. But, you know, back then it was known as uh, shell shock in yeah. World War One yeah. and World War Two. It was fatigue, battle fatigue, yeah. war fatigue. Something, it was something fatigue. Battle fatigue. Yeah, I remember hearing that. Uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. so that's what Spike had. Because um, he was, you know, I think he was in Italy where his entire group, just about the whole group was killed at once. Right, right. And he lived. Good Lord. And he kind of came to, you know, he was unconscious and he kind of came to and he just sort of snapped. And he, in, in one of, he has a series of books of memoirs about the war years, which are fantastic. Right. Utterly fantastic. If you ever want to know what it was actually like in World War II. Right. It's not romanticized. It's a bunch of lads filling time until mm-hmm. they're afraid for their lives and killing the enemy. Right. But, you know, he talks about he just he cracked up and he just started laughing and giggling like a madman cuz he literally right. lost his mind. Right. And they put him in a hospital and, you know, after a while in the hospital, he was just, you know, he kind of slowly came back to himself and he had a series of breakdowns over the next while. Um, yeah. From his first marriage was really bad and he was not a great husband. Uh, he was a much better second husband, but his uh, his first marriage, he, he wasn't great. Um, and... Uh, when you're single-handedly at times writing half an hour of absurdist comedy every week and starring in it. Right. That's a lot. When I was, when I was doing my podcast bunkum, it was about 15 minutes a week. Yeah. And it was, I had to stop because I got so burnt out. Yeah. Um, and I slowed to every two weeks, and I took a couple of breaks. But, uh, yeah, it's hard. You get burnt out real fast. And doing twice as much writing uh, with, you know, for the BBC, where people actually yeah. listen to it. <laughs> like, that's a lot yeah. of pressure. 
for those listening along uh, at home, um, that's the reason that there's a restory episode about once every month and a half. Yeah, <laughs> it takes us much longer because, yeah, yeah, it's like, well, I'm not exhausted from work today. I can write a, a page. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, but yeah, and but, and there's a lot of that because all three of them were in the war, as were so many of people their age. Right. And everyone, even if you weren't in the military, you were being bombed. Or yep. your relatives were being bombed. You know, if you lived in Scotland, you might know someone who was being bombed. Yeah, it was inescapable. In some way, shape, or form, you had no choice but to suffer the tragedy and the horror of the fact that, oh, by the way, uh, war is going on all around you, and especially you, the British, uh, a um, an opposing force is trying to defeat all of you for the very nature of who you are right so uh you know um you live over keep there, calm and so carry on die. yeah right uh everything you know you'll be fine uh but yeah and, and and yet somehow they they produced amazingly resilient but obviously traumatized folks yeah from that 50s 60s era and you can see it in the comedy a couple generations yeah definitely in the comedy and the music you know you wonder why all those 60s British bands were playing American blues. Well, because yeah. life sucked for them. Yeah. And when they heard American blues music, they were like, oh, someone else also has a crappy life. Yeah. I get this. It actually re- it reminds me of a, uh, a meme that I actually saw a little bit uh, uh, a few days ago where it said, uh, um, did you have a nice life growing up or are you funny now? Yeah, <laughs> I like that. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, like you know, obviously there's a million reasons you don't have to be in the in the military to get PTSD, and you don't have to, you know, get beat up to be funny. Like there's a yeah. million ways to get there. Yeah. <laughs> Lucky you. Yeah. Plenty of great trauma in the world. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, but there's something about th- those three. They had the shared experience of the war. They were all musicians. Um, the They met in jazz clubs, comedy clubs, theaters, at the end of and after the war. I lay gasping on the railway back with a knot of my bonds in grit Pipkin's pocket. It looked pretty hopeless for me. you know they all did this and that they were all working on this they were in a band they were doing a show they were working in a nightclub they're doing this and that but the goon show was for all of them uh benteen included it was really their first big success yeah and benteen left to do other stuff he became big uh he uh, he did a lot of documentaries and children's programs and stuff um, to, like through the nineties, he you know he was a, he he stayed big. They all stayed big. Kept himself employed. Um, on our side, we pretty much only know about Peter Sellers. 
because of his yeah. movie career. But over there, Harry Seacombe stayed big till he died. Peter Sellers was immense. Um, Spike Milligan was big until he died. And uh, Michael Benteen stayed big. Um, but the other thing that they have, and it's something that so many of those giant pillars of music and comedy have where there was no one breathing down their neck. Right. There weren't 10 producers asking for changes and giving them notes. Yeah. There wasn't the, they didn't have the too many cooks problem. Right. Right. Plus they had the chemistry of real life friends. They had been real life friends for a few years. Yeah. And working with each other for a few years before they started the goon show. Right. So they were already kind of in love with each other as, as a group of friends well enough that they could start gagging with each other and, and they probably knew each other's flow pretty naturally. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And uh, and they knew how to crack each other up. Right. Um, whereas, you know, you look at a, a typical sitcom, you have studio notes, you have director notes, you have producer notes, you have sponsor notes network notes it's a lot of notes and everyone feels like if i don't put a note on it then i'm not doing my job right right whereas the first episode um that we talked about the young ones um i was just watching a uh re-watching a documentary about them today and uh i think it was the director um, was talking about how what ended up really working in their favor with the first season is because they were coming from a nightclub, comedy club origin, they mm-hmm. had no idea how TV worked. Right. And so they didn't know when they were writing it, when Rick Mayall, Lisa Meyer, and Ben Elton were writing it, Mayer, uh, they they didn't know, oh, you can't do that. Yeah, right. They didn't know that would eat up half the budget. You can't do that. So they wrote it, and after the first couple episodes, they're like, they're like, should we try to talk over budgets with you before the And they said, just write what you write, and we'll figure it out. And if we can't do it, I'll let you know. But just keep going. Right. And it's because of that, not knowing what you can't do not knowing the rules and the boundaries yeah. that the young ones are good Monty Python the reason they were so good was the first season no one watched it at the BBC right so they could get away with all of these horrible off-color jokes yeah before and the yeah, absurdism before anybody even... the the dream logic and the the uh, the, what do you call that? The train of thought thing where there's no logic to Stream it. of consciousness. Thank you. Stream of consciousness. Yeah. Of the sketch lengths. They got away with it because yeah. there wasn't... No one at the BBC was saying, um, actually, it would be better if this had an ending and this next one started off properly with an introduction. Right. It was... They told them, okay, you can have 13 episodes. Go away. Yeah, right. And they right. went, okay. And they had no money. <laughs> and they went away and they made a show. And they said, you know, I have a couple months in, oh, I guess people are kind of liking it. Should we watch? Yeah. We should We should make half of this joke. And then when we get bored with it, 
will just say, oh, you're not fun anymore. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Ren and Stimpy was the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, uh, you know, after the first half of a season, Nickelodeon started watching it and went, oh, God. Yeah. What are we, what are we doing? Yeah. Who let them on? Oh, we did? Oh, crap. <laughs> Oh, wait, we agreed to this. Why did we do this? <laughs> um, but yeah, so they, they, they didn't have the too many cooks problem because it was, it was usually Spike Milligan and uh, Larry Stevens or just Spike Milligan or there were a couple of other writers that would right. come in too. Um, and there were a couple of times where Spike was, you know, unavailable because he was in the, in the hospital or something. Yeah. Um, and someone else would write in his style and they would have people come in and cover for him. And you know, they said one time Peter Sellers couldn't do it and they had people come and substitute for him. And I think they said it took like five people to cover for him. That's fantastic. But not surprising because, you know, if you get one of those folks that is a comedy powerhouse, yeah. you know, um, you think of the Pythons, you think of Sellers, you think of Tim and Eric. It's like there's all of this silliness that's just wrapped up in the their creative process that cannot be recreated. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I, I don't know that there's I'm going to avoid doing what you and I talked about, which is the degradation into negativity. But um, I I. I'm going to gesticulate wildly at modern Hollywood and leave it at that. What's that? You're breaking <laughs> up. I couldn't hear that. Yeah, I didn't say anything. <laughs> um, speaking of negativity, this is a bunch of British dudes in the 50s. So we would be remiss, if not irresponsible, to say, to ignore uh the uh, blatant racism throughout the show. Oh. It doesn't happen much. Keep in mind, this was the same time as Amos and Andy, a literal blackface. Yeah. Number one in the, in the ratings, American sitcom. Right. But uh, some of, some of the jokes with Ray Ellington he would be playing a African, quote, savage, unquote. Me come to challenge you to fight a duel. Fight a duel? I refuse, sir. I'll fight anyone else but a duel. Blood knock! <laughs> You're acting like a coward. I'm not acting. There were times where uh, they would play Chinese or Japanese characters. Uh, there were a couple of Indian characters that... Yeah. Sellers and Milligan played. But then, you know, I'll be honest, though, that that same awkwardness that comes with getting away with um, just really bad and really stupid racism jokes because they could do it. And because it was that era, it was that also era, yeah. it was that era. And it's also an unfortunate byproduct of god it's got to be like 1950s to at least 1980s 1990s where you'd still have these off-color jokes showing up and so i mean python's bad for it oh sure um there's a there's a lot of 80s uh comedy that's bad for it and um well i mean uh god when uh snl billy crystal 
you know, he would do Sammy Davis in blackface. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there was a whole movie where the main character was in blackface. Uh, the yeah. the guy who, who pretends to be black to go to Harvard or brother or something like that. Something, yeah. yeah. I forget, yeah. I forget the name, but, uh, and they were like, well, if you actually watch the movie, you know, it's making fun of that idea. And so it's like, All right, yeah, I, I'm sure yours are right. Yeah. Right. It's also, bad. it's also an hour of a dude in blackface. Like, really? Right. You really right. gonna, yeah. it's, it's, and that's... it's wild that it came back in the eighties like that. Yeah. Yeah. And all the people now, you know, our governor for example, who's like, hey, remember that time you did blackface in the 80s? Yeah. What was that? Yeah. And, yeah, the 80s were weird. Yeah, the 80s were weird. They had, yeah, there was there was all that. Because, um, like, it went away was, for 20 or 30 years. And then it just yeah. came back for, like, five years. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. very strange. Right. Um, But, and I will say, English racism and American racism are both bad, very different. Yeah. American racism comes from slavery. If you're yeah. white, you are good. If you are black, you are bad. Right. That's the law of America for centuries. And yeah. it's taking so long to claw out of that because it's baked yeah. into the core of the country. And it takes a long time to expunge it, which sucks. But every racial joke in America, if it's a white person doing it, is almost automatically racist. Like, you yeah. have to get rid of the racism to make it okay, is how ingrained it is here. The power struggle and the punching down, even if it's a poor white person making fun of a billionaire black person, you know, if it's a homeless white person making fun of a black movie star. Yeah. It's still to them punching down, which is absurd and gross and bad. The English version is much more similar to the way that every European country hates each other. The English, you know, the goon show, they also have a French main character, uh, Moriarty. They have, uh, the idol burgers, the German guy, uh, they make fun of an Italian guy sometimes. The airless hand with a pair of uncooked German army boots. Like any quick-thinking Englishman, Seagoon rapidly tried them on. Curses, they're too tight. Then, dear listeners, I saw why. In each, in each beat. <laughs> in each boot with a pair of human feet. Um, and if you ask spike about the indian characters he would point out you know he grew up in india yeah um and his favorite people there were the the local people that he saw every day those were his closest friends and loved ones um but it's still a white guy putting on an indian accent yeah exactly and it's like ooh, why'd you do that Oh, right. that's not great, buddy. Yeah, because it's kind of baked in with um, the the rest of their le the 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 rest of their legacy. But then that's that's the other piece of it, right? Is that um you then and yeah you also go the, into the some colonial of these... legacy. Yeah, the colonial. Ooh, that thing we did to your country, right? 
Yeah, and 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 that's part of that's part of the the uncomfortable process of digesting comedy like this from that era is that there's a lot of going into it implicitly acknowledging and saying to yourself, "Okay, all right. Well, you know, if I'm going to watch this, I have to accept the fact that there is going to be racism here, here, here and here, you know, and and I have to either acknowledge the elements of it that are funny or I, you know, have to accept the fact that, you know, I'm I'm not going to um, placate this entertainer because they chose to go this route. Um, yeah. And that's a judgment that, you know, that's a, a per person judgment. It's a call, per person you know? and a per case. Yeah. Sometimes yeah, a joke depends on the person being awful. Yeah. Sometimes it's, oh, right. It was the 40s. Um, you know, there's some stuff like, uh, um, where they had to do things a certain way for the studio to accept it, for it to get added into the movie. Right. That's not a great excuse. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just wild. And, uh, but yeah, it doesn't excuse it. It's not okay. But yeah, it's just something that, you know, we should acknowledge out there. Yeah. Um so yeah, so that was fun. You want to hear a great uh, a great segment? Sure. This is my favorite goon show thing. This is from the episode Tales of Montmartre. All right. And it is uh Nettie Seagoon plays uh Toulouse Lautrec. Okay. I'm sorry. Harry Seacombe plays Toulouse Lautrec. Okay. But he's basically Nettie Segan. So, right. So, uh, Peter Sellers plays Paul Gogon. Oh, nice. And uh, the woman who completes the love triangle uh, is an actual woman actress. And she plays Fifi. And she was only on a handful of times. She was also in okay. uh, one of the versions of the Robin Hood episode. Okay. Um. So it's... Uh, it's Toulouse Lautrec. Uh, Paul Gogon is not in this scene. Uh, Eccles has just randomly shown up, and uh, okay. and does a callback to an, uh, a joke at the beginning of the show. Right. And so Toulouse Lautrec is kicking out Eccles so that he can be alone with Fifi. Now get out, Eccles. Still fighting. Let me kiss away those broken bones. There. Is that better? Fine, fine, fine. Get out, Get out, Get out. Oh, now, darling, we are alone. Yeah, darling. Let the air go. Let the air go. Shut up. Now. Get out, you little idiot. I'm sorry about that interruption, darling. That's okay, darling. Get out! And again, it only works in audio. Yeah. And right. they do the same joke, I think, four times. Right. And it works each time because you're like, okay, well, surely they're done now. But it just, ugh, it's fabulous. It's the best. Well, <sighs> I, 
so I, I'm going to throw one more postscript on there and then uh, I will ever so gently point out that we are at an hour 30. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I will basically note that um, that gag in audio then um, becomes a style of gag that you see in the Mel, Bron- Mel Blanc and, and, and Fritz feeling Looney Tune cartoons. Because I, you know, and I, I've got to wonder if it's one of those where it's like they heard the guys on the Goon Show and they went, I wonder how you videofy that. Um, mm. Because that that very gag ends up being the the light switch on, off, and cartoon eyes in the black gag in uh, all of the classic Looney Tune cartoons, right? Because what they're what the Goon Show guys are doing in audio, you know, then. Uh, Blank and Freeling are doing later on with, you know, Bugs Bunny kicks Elmer Fudd out. And, you know, then Bugs goes, yeah, I got rid of him. You know, and then a second set of eyes open in the same room. Oh, you didn't get rid of me. Oh, you okay, know? okay. Yeah, I was trying to think yeah. what, what gag are you talking about. Yes, yes. And that was actually earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Those would have been in the 40s. Oh, okay. So, all yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But yeah, exactly. yeah. Well, then I I but wonder yeah. then how much cross pollination existed there. But yeah, 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 could very well be. Yeah, um, and I mean it goes back to oh my god, those early Looney Tunes are so good, and yeah, uh, we are recording this on the day that HBO Max launched. Uh, I had it a subscription to it, and I watched some of the new Looney Tunes cartoons they made, and they are hilarious and wacky and fun and crazy. They're it's right back to 1940. They're so good yeah. and so strong, and you should watch them. Yes. And you should also listen to The Goon Show. Yes. And we should probably edit this down somewhere. <laughs> nah, screw them. All right. <laughs> you get all of it. All right. Oh, it's so good. So, listen to The Goon Show, uh, and whatever the last episode said and whatever the next episode said uh check those out too some of them (laughs) might be you can't really check them out they're things that exist in the world but they're neat and you should like them yeah use the wiki (laughs) and the google to to go find them yeah yeah it's wonderful there's lots of good stuff out there yes Uh, and hey you're at home it's quarantine uh, yeah, so, I mean, and, what else do you have to do? And even if you're listening to this after 2020, it's still quarantine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think where it's just, welcome to quarantine. Yeah. It's and welcome fun. to enjoying listening to our awesome radio show for as long as you're in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. I won't go off for an hour and a half every time, because that's, oh, the goon show is just <laughs> snap, smack dab in my heart. That's my number right. one. Well, this is why I wanted to listen to it. So I'm, I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you went down the road that you did. And, and now I'm definitely curious about going and checking it out. Yeah. So that's the goon show and you should go listen to it immediately. Why are you still listening to this? <laughs> and to, so just to, to recap for everybody listening in, um, it's uh, BBC radio extra. Uh, which can be found uh, with a quick Google search. Um, BBC Radio 4 Extra yeah. has episodes of The Goon Show available. There's also a bunch um, on YouTube. Right. And, I mean, you could be nice and buy the CDs of it. 
you know. And then <laughs> if, uh, if 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 you're still trying to remember where you remember Peter Sellers from, uh, the various Pink Panther movies, yes. Doctor Strange Love. Yes. Um, a really good Muppet Show episode. Yeah, yeah. And then um, I I can't remember off the top of my head the, the other kind of other media that Spike Milligan showed up in. I think it was primarily Goon Show. Goon Show, he had a, uh, a couple of sketch shows. He did a great play called The Bed Sitting Room that got turned into a movie, I think also by Dick Lester, um, that was sort of... You watch it and you're like, oh, that guy. Oh, that guy. Oh, that guy. It's yeah. one of those movies. And that's spectacular. It's a post-apocalyptic uh, movie. Um, it's very bleak and funny. And it's about an old man who, because of radiation poisoning, feels that he's turning into a bed-sitting room. <laughs> um, that's appropriate. So that's cool. And that's a good yeah. movie. Uh, but yeah, he did a, a bunch of sketch afterwards. He was on The Muppet Show once as well. Oh, nice. Um, and yeah. And oh, also, uh, one, a quick 10 second story. When Spike Milligan, he got, uh, uh, I don't know if it was a, an Order of the Cross or uh, some sort of award. And uh, he, or it might have been like a, a, a show business award. And uh, there was a letter. Prince Charles was a huge Goon Show fan since he right. was a kid. And so he was, he was a big fan of theirs and, uh, he was getting this award on television and there's a, a note from Prince Charles praising him and saying all this nice stuff. And Spike Milligan goes, uh, what he, he called him a grubby little bastard. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Something like that. <laughs> Because uh, right. he, he was a clingy little bastard, something like that. Right, uh, right. And the next day, he, he sent him a telegram saying, I suppose the knighthood is out of the question. <laughs> yeah, so that's fun. So that's, that's the fun. Goon Show. They're great. That was awesome. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate you sharing this with me. Yay, my pleasure. Take us out, Dan. Do 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 do